When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The notorious Marquis de Sade was small. At just five foot two inches, he was more Napoleon than Napoleon. His contemporaries considered him a dandy, meaning he took great care of his appearance to the point of excessive vanity. He was a noble of the sword, coming from an old and powerful aristocratic family. Today, we refer to a particular sort of sexual appetite, when one is sexually aroused in the deliverance of pain upon others' bodies, as sadism, because the Marquis made that particular proclivity famous. He lived a debauched life by the standards of any time, and was arrested time and time again for sexual crimes committed. This episode may not be suitable for young ears or listeners who are sensitive to stories about sexual violence and child abuse, so please use caution. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the life and times and revolutions of the one, the only, Donatien Alphonse Francois, or the infamous Marquis de Sade. I'm Marissa Rhodes. And I'm Avril Earls. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. The Marquis de Sade was born June 2nd, 1740 at Condé Palace in Paris. He was a difficult child at times, but he had a childhood that was typical of aristocratic French boys. He spent most of his time as a pupil to various tutors, and at 14, he began training for the king's light cavalry. Military service was typical of French aristocrats. The Sads were noblesse de paix, or nobles of the sword, which meant that in medieval times, they'd earned their nobility through military service. This had changed dramatically by the 18th century, but, but the descriptor stuck around and still had some practical implications for his life. Saad's adolescence would have been dominated by the violence of warfare. He witnessed some horrific scenes of death and injury, but most teens involved in military service would have. This was a brutally violent time. From 1759 until 1763, Saad fought in the Seven Years' War. In America, we call this the French and Indian War. He quickly moved up in rank from a member of the infantry to captain during the war, which is the highest rank of junior officer attainable in the French army. He left the army once the conflict was over in February 1763 and got straight to business doing his favorite thing. Love making. 
He seduced a young unmarried noblewoman named Laure de Lorie and was caught in bed next to her by her father. He fled to Avignon to escape punishment for deflowering her. But he continued to woo her from afar and eventually she rejected him. Angry at her rejection, he accused her of giving him venereal disease and threatened to tell her new beau, which is some straight-up Jerry Springer... Maury Povich. Maury Povich, Montel Jordan stuff right here. Yeah, I was super into, like, 2000s uh, talk, talk shows. shows. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say you embarrass Jenny me, Jones. but you do kind of embarrass Jenny me. Jenny Jones, Ricky Lake. Nope, no. Nope. Yeah. Oprah is the only oh. talk show host that ever has mattered and ever will matter. <laughs> um, two months later, in the spring of 1763, Saad married Renée Pelagie Cordier de Lonay de Montreuil, which is like, you know, we're just going to call her Renée. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she... She was by no means his first romantic partner. He had courted and was in love with Renee's younger sister, Anne Prosper. He had maintained for years a mistress named La Beauvoisin, which is French for the good or beautiful neighbor. Um, and I like to joke that this was maybe the beginning of the whole girl next door thing, you know, the Beauvoisin. We know based on his criminal record that he frequently hired sex workers in addition to sleeping with his wife, his main mistress, and several other side women. Gross. In November 1763, Saad was jailed at the Chateau de Vincennes for two weeks under the charge of debauchery. The Oxford English Dictionary defines debauchery in the 18th century as vicious indulgence in sensual pleasure. This arrest was for his being a, quote, moral threat to prostitutes. So basically, he was abusing sex workers. 18th century Frenchmen are notoriously talented at using euphemisms to describe lewd acts. So the descriptors are fuzzy when you're talking about sex crimes. As a result, we don't know the details of what he did to these poor women, but it was probably horrifically violent if he, a noble of the sword, was punished for something he did to lowly sex workers. It may surprise you to know that 18th century France was not a really friendly place for women who sold sex. His first stint in jail did nothing to curb his violent sexual appetites, as jail is known to not ever do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, No matter what else happened in his life, the births of his children, the deaths of his parents, additional military successes, um, the French Revolution, he continued to commit sex crimes and to get arrested for it. In 1768, the year his son was born, a sex worker named Rose Keller accused him of flagellating her, so basically beating her, whipping her. Whipping her, yeah. He was imprisoned in the Chateau de Pierre-Ancise, but released quickly because Rose withdrew her complaint after being paid off. His second son was born the next year and his daughter in 1771. During this time, Saad and his wife were living in his family seat, Lacoste, with uh, her younger sister, Anne. Remember her? She's the one that he was in love with. She had become a nun and lived with her sister and brother-in-law, who was also her former lover. I guess nunhood suited her? Yeah, right. Okay. In 1772, Saad was visiting Marseille when he and his manservant Latour, and we all picture Gaston and Lafou here, naturally, <laughs> um, dr- 
when he and his manservant drugged, whipped, and sodomized several women during an orgy that they'd orchestrated with the local sex workers. Now, sodomy is a fascinating historical crime because it made homosexuality illegal, but it was also meant to discourage hetero couples from having non-procreative sex. A French legal definition from the 1780s is as follows, quote, Sodomy is the crime of any man with a man, of any woman with a woman, even of a man with a woman, when by, by unimaginable debauchery, the jurist is sort of clutching his pearls here, they do not use the ordinary path of procreation. The horror. The horror. <laughs> the anal and oral horror. <laughs> this definition encompasses so many different kinds of sexual activity, consensual and not, that it's hard to know what exactly the Marquis de Sade did at this orgy. But we can be sure that his activities were shocking to his peers. Trials for sodomy were rare in 18th century France and even more rare among the nobility. Few instances of sodomy were tried in court. If you think about it, they were hard to prove. And the traditional punishment, burning at the stake, was rarely handed down. There were only seven, quote, sodomites burned in Paris between 1714 and 1783. And five of them were so burned because they had committed other offenses in addition to the sodomy, like rape or murder. So the sodomy was just one long list of offenses that they'd been found to have committed. And that's kind of why they burned. were burned. Yeah. yeah. Saad was 32 years old at this point, and his father had already died, so he was heir to his family's fortune and legacy. He took Anne, his sister-in-law slash nun, uh, whom he deflowered in her youth, and fled to Italy to escape execution. There he lived incognito as the Comte de Mazon, and uh, he was found guilty of sodomy in absentia and sentenced to burning. Either his portrait or a straw figure dressed like him was burned in effigy on September 12, 1772. And I feel like, like, why even bother? I mean, burning an effigy of someone is nothing like burning the actual person. I mean, I guess it's similar for the people who are doing the burning because they get to burn someone, mm -hmm. I guess, and like Sorry. dress him up like the Marquis de Sade and pretend they're burning him. But it's not the same thing at all for the person who's supposed to be executed. Like, you know, it's... He, it's he they why they even bother if he wasn't around just don't just delay the execution whatever um it makes you wonder who these punishments were actually for and it's not like if they caught him they would have said oh we already burned you so we're not going to burn you again they would have just burned him again right for for real that time but yeah for real but him not i mean there's no not again. the effigy right not the effigy Two months later, a lettre de cachet was issued for his arrest. A lettre de cachet, or hidden letter, is signed by the king and one of his ministers and closed by the royal seal. It amounted to direct orders from the king himself. Uh, sort of like an executive order, maybe, in the U.S.? Ugh, I don't even want to like, say those <laughs> words right now. The EOs. His mother-in-law was instrumental in getting this lettre de cachet. She was super bitter about how he'd ruined her youngest daughter, Anne, even though he was married to her elder daughter. She never got over it and ostensibly vowed to make his life hell whenever she had the chance. So due to the hidden letter and his outstanding condemnation for sodomy, he was apprehended in, in Savoy and imprisoned in the fortress of, I hate you again, Neola. And imprisoned in the fortress of Miolan. 
at this point, he lived in more famous historical buildings than I've seen in real life. Yeah, jealous. <laughs> if you can call being in prison somewhere living. Yeah, true. I guess, yeah. He was in Milan for about five months before he escaped with the help of his dear mother. Since he was rich and important and sort of just fancy, he was able to live in hiding, quote-unquote, at Lacoste, remember that's his family seat, um, for eight months without anyone doing anything about it. It didn't seem like the authorities were trying really very hard to catch him since he was hiding out at his own house. <laughs> In January of 1774, his mother-in-law secured another letter de cachet from the king and organized a raid on the cost with the goal of apprehending Saad once and for all. But he found out ahead of time because, once again, he's rich and fancy and can, you know, has connections, and went into deep hiding for five months. We're not sure where exactly he went during this time, but we know he returned that fall with a gaggle of teenage servant girls and a boy that he referred to as his male, quote, secretary. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. By then, they were feeling bold enough that his wife joined him to live at Lacoste. At the beginning of the next year, so this is 1775 by this point, mm -hmm. the families of his gaggle of servant girls started causing him trouble. They lodged formal complaints with the local magistrates about their sexual mistreatment at the hands of the Marquis. Apparently, he'd been given a pass because the complainants were pacified somehow, probably bought off. Mm -hmm. Some sources say that his mother-in-law obtained another letter de cachet that gagged the servant families and even imprisoned one of them for several years. Why she'd render the service for her sworn enemy, I can't say. Maybe she was playing the long game and she had some plan and she just wanted to get these out of the way. Um, or maybe the sources were confused and his own mother helped him rather than his wife's mother slash arch nemesis. Mm -hmm. Now... Even though the complaints against him were hushed up, he started to feel sorry for himself. He fled once again to Italy and began a writing career, focusing on his philosophical views about art, politics, sex, and anything he could think to write about. He's quoted as saying, If anyone so much as whips a cat in this province, they all say, It's Monsieur Dixard who did it! <laughs> So <laughs> he basically started playing the tortured outcast writer type. Um, after a year in Italy, committing all of his thoughts to paper, he returned to the cost and hired more servant girls. And he continued to be accused of sexual mistreatment of said servants. Some things obviously never change for the Marquis de Sade. One such servant was Catherine Trier. Boom! <laughs> Sorry. Saad had taken to calling Catherine Justine. What the fuck? Well, he eventually writes a novel called Justine. Yeah, I know, but like, Catherine Trier, where's Justine come out of that? It's just part of his sexual fantasy. You have to get into it. You can just it. be like Katie or Cat. No, no, just Justine. He had this thing in his head that he needed to... He needed to do someone named Justine. Yep. All right. Uh, so when Justine's father came to in January 1777 to collect her and bring her back home, she refused. Uh, Catherine, a.k.a. Justine's father, shot at Saad, but his gun misfired. 
Yeah, so this is something that we'll notice. He escapes certain death several times in yeah. his lifetime. It's very strange. So this father took a gun and, like, pointed it point blank at his head, and the gun misfired. And, you know, I mean, guns were pretty unreliable in the 18th century. They were, indeed. So I guess, you know, whatever. But still, the what powder are the odds? might have been wet. We don't know. Unchastened by this close encounter with death and knowing him, he probably enjoyed it almost dying. Actually, if you think about it, he probably thought it was awesome. Mm, probably. The Marquis and his wife left Lacoste for Paris a couple weeks later. They meant to visit his sick mother. They'd heard of her illness from his mother-in-law. So remember, his arch nemesis. Mm-hmm. Little did he know his mother had died earlier that month, but his mother-in-law kept this news from him so that she could execute another diabolical plot against him. It's pretty cool. I don't know. I think she's kind of cool. I kind of like her. Oh, all right. <laughs> when, she's the hero of the story. Yeah. <laughs> when, when he arrived in Paris, he was arrested again and imprisoned in the Chateau de Vincennes, except for a brief escape to Lacoste in a rearrest, thanks to his ever-resourceful mother-in-law. He spent the next 13 years incarcerated. Early in his imprisonment, he successfully appealed the sodomy conviction from Marseille, but his prison sentence was unaffected by the acquittal because the lettre de cachet that actually imprisoned him was still valid. So it essentially didn't matter that he was found not guilty of the sodomy charges. You know, like, that's that's an absolutist regime for you. It does, you're found not guilty, you're acquitted, but... But the king the actual, said you were. Right, but the, the, the king, this instrument that actually put you in jail s- still means something, and yeah. you still have to stay there. The next year, 1779, he was granted permission to use pen and paper, so he renewed his writing career, writing plays, short stories, and novels. His wife was barred from visiting him until 1781, more than four years into his imprisonment. He was so tortured by suspicions that she was being unfaithful, kettles and pots, am I right, (laughs) that she entered a convent to appease him. And this, as much as anything else he's done, skeeves me out. Like, you can keep, essentially keep a harem of young servant girls and boys to use for your sadistic fantasies. But once you get locked up, you coerce your wife into entering a convent so you can be assured of her everlasting faithfulness. Like, I'll punch him in the nuts. I know, it's bad. <laughs> In 1784, so that's about seven years into his sentence, the Chateau Vincennes is closed down, so Saad was transferred to the Bastille. At the Bastille, he finished what would be the final draft of 120 Days of Sodom, perhaps his most famous work. It was unfinished, but he'd outlined the remainder of the novel so we know how it was meant to end. So I think the first couple chapters are written out in full, and then the rest is just sort of briefed briefed Mm -hmm. out. It's worth describing briefly the content of this novel. In high school, I watched a film adaptation of this book because I was into really avant-garde films and I thought it was really cool. And we, um, I think we were like 17 and me and all my friends were like, yeah, let's do it. Um, We went to Mondo Video, which is like this sort of, I don't know, independent like video rental place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I almost regretted it because it was, it was pretty upsetting um, it tells the story of four wealthy men who kidnap 36 teenage children. And the men are all things like, I think one's a judge, one's a priest. You know, they're all like very fancy guys who hold really powerful positions. Um, so these uh, men kidnap 36 teenage children and hold them in a remote castle in Germany. Um, they also bring in four female brothel keepers who tell stories about their lurid and abusive sex lives. 
So they're there, um, the brothel keepers, they're there to give the men ideas about things that they can do with and to the children. Um, over the course of 120 days, inspired by the stories of the brothel keepers, the men rape, torture, and eventually murder their teenage captives. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, the details, as you can imagine, are just horrific and not really necessary to, to get into here. But to give you an idea, I can tell you that one of the least upsetting things that happens to these children um, was that they were made to eat their own feces, like as some sort of sick foreplay. These four men were super into that. And um, they ate feces. They made the kids eat their own feces. It's just really bad. We have a question in the background. I have a question. Wait. Yeah. So is that an adaptation of one of Marquis de Sade's stories? This is it the book is he the wrote. Story. It yeah. is the story he it's wrote. It's the film of the book. Okay. That makes sense. So that's in the story and that it's also in the film. Okay. Yeah. I have an empty stomach, and now I'm going to throw up. It's horrific, yeah. That was one of the most upsetting parts, because in the movie, you see these kids, and they're, like, gagging and, like, crying, and, oh, my God, it's just, it's so sad. I hope it was really chocolate. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was really chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure it was. This was black and white, I think. No, maybe it wasn't. But still, I'm sure. It was made in the 70s. It is 70s, yeah. So I think it wasn't. It's probably in color. Yeah. It was probably, it was chocolate. Don't worry, it was chocolate. It was chocolate. I know. But (laughs) the children in this story, so these children experienced immeasurable abuse and horror and ultimately death um, for the purpose of sexual pleasure for these wealthy men. The novel uh, demonstrates the depths of depravity reached by Saad's fantasies. These were very violent, pedophilic, and very taboo. Like, everything that is gross, the worst of the worst, Mm -hmm. he was into it. So we're talking um, super messed up, predatory behavior here, and not just a guy who was, like, into some kinky shit. Right. And Saad wrote 120 Days of Sodom on a narrow swath of paper that was 65 feet long, and he rolled it into a small scroll that he hid in his cell. He began suffering from hallucinations during this time. As rioting was taking place outside of the Bastille, the beginnings of what would be the French Revolution, Saad noted the crowds and used a pissing tube to call out to them. So I think they must have, I don't know, I guess maybe the the, the prison. prisoners didn't want to pee in their cells, so they would have little tubes and they would like yeah. pee out of little tubes out the window. It was probably just like a... Oh, you think it's out of the window? I thought, That's what I thought. I thought there'd be, like, holes in the wall of the prison cell, and it would just... Go in a trough or yeah, something? Yeah, like, run down into a trough. That's what I don't I know. Imagined. Maybe. But he used it... You know how if you talk through, like, a little... Yeah. Tw- it, like, sort of magnifies. So he put saying. his mouth up to that pea-soaked Caress. Hole. Or caress. Good. Caress. caress. I meant to say it correct. <laughs> I'm glad. I hope it tasted bad. One day in June, in early June, he used the tube to tell the crowds that the prisoners were being strangled inside and that they needed to storm the Bastille to set them free. One month later, he was transferred to Charenton, an insane asylum about 4.5 miles away. He left most of his manuscripts behind, hidden in his cell. And meanwhile, the riots outside the Bastille continued and security measures were increased. 
Ten days after Saad's transfer to Sheraton, the Bastille was sacked and a conflict began that we now know as the French Revolution. All of his manuscripts were destroyed in a chaos and violence except 120 days of Sodom, which was rescued from Saad's former cell by a prison guard. A man named Arnoux de Saint-Maximum was in possession of the manuscript during the Revolution. We're not sure. I don't think he was the guard, but somehow he, he got a had a hold of it. Of it. Yeah. yeah. He eventually sold it to the Marquis de Villeneuve-Trans. And um, this is the family that guarded it carefully until the 20th century when it hit the presses and all hell broke loose. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Anyway, back to 1789. The Marquis de Sade spent about eight months in the Sheraton Asylum while the revolution gained momentum. On April 2nd, 1790, the National Assembly abolished Lettre de Cachet and Sade was set free. Hmm. So all that took was just the National Assembly say, these things don't mean anything anymore. Right. And then he was, he's Absolutism out. Absolutism is over! <laughs> so this gives us some insight into the impact on everyday life during the revolution. Um, political elites slowly dismantled the French monarchy, so the elements of everyday life that were held in place by the monarch's authority, such as prisoners arrested by Lettre de Cachet, for example were entirely changed by these highfalutin political events. So um, it's easy to just to think about these political events as things that, you know, didn't affect people's everyday lives, but they really did. They really did, yeah. This was especially true for former nobility and the wealthy who were targeted by revolutionary factions. Eventually, the National Assembly abolished the Catholic Church, the Gregorian calendar, feudalism, military ranks, elite privileges, and so much more. We're going to pause here and come back to the rest of the story in a few minutes after a word from a sponsor. If you're looking for quality vintage vinyl and new vinyl releases, the largest selection of new and vintage vinyl in Buffalo, New York is held at Revolver Records. We want to encourage you to go there. Our friend Phil is the very single, very attractive. Is he really? No. Oh, my God. Why are you doing this? Because that's what, that's what he oh. wrote. Yeah, that's yeah. what he wrote. That, yeah. that we should say he's single and very attractive. Oh, no. Yeah. The very single and very attractive owner, Phil, is a friend of the show, and he wants you to come down, get all your record needs met, get all your, you know, fancy... Doors, singles, and Huey yeah. Lewis in the news. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, or whatever. Get all your doors, singles. Doors, singles. <laughs> don't forget Hall & Oates. Hall & Oates. <laughs> Chubby Checkers? I don't know. This is the worst commercial ever. If you happen to be a big nerd that listens to Chubby Checker on a vinyl... Go to this Isn't that who buys vinyls? I don't know. I don't Big know. nerds? It's like hipsters or something. Hipsters unite. Go down to Revolver Records. If you have a mustache, go to Revolver Records. <laughs> you will find what you're looking for. If you have a mustache or want a mustache, go down to Revolver Records for all your vintage vinyl, vintage and new vinyl needs. That's RevolverRecordsInc.com. And if you happen to be in Buffalo, stop by Lloyd's Taco. Grab a taco, and then head into Revolver Records and get all your your Revolver Records. <laughs> and get all your vinyls. Get all your records. Oh my God. That's bad. That okay. terrible. You try. So 
Saad's personal life changed quite a bit as well. Once he was released, his wife sued for marital separation. You go, girl. <laughs> like, 20 years too late, something like that? That's <laughs> fine. Um, Saad had affairs with various women thereafter, um, so maybe they didn't really change that much for him, um, until he met actress Marie Constance Renelle Canet, who remained his mistress until his death. But the violent, unpredictable events of the French Revolution attracted Saad to public life. In fact, he fit right in, despite his noble family. Upon his release from prison, the Marquis started to go by the name Citizen Louis Saad and joined the Section de Pique, a radical revolutionary faction in Paris. His past military experience was put to use organizing their cavalry, and in 1793, the year of the terror, he became president of the section. He even addressed the National Convention in 1792 and published several political pamphlets. Um, eight out of, the, out of nine of these survive today. At the same time, the public began to take notice of Saad's writing. His erotic novel Justine was published the same year he was released from prison. His dramas were performed in revolutionary Paris. Uh, the Comédie Française accepted Sophie and de Franc in uh, 1790, and the next year, The Misfortunes of Libertinage, with, with a strong sadosexual plot, was met with enthusiastic acclaim. The reign of terror ramped up in the beginning of 1793 with the beheading of Louis XVI in January and the beheading of Marie Antoinette later that October. Saad was in his glory as president of his radical section. His interests aligned well with the tone the revolution was taking. Most people have heard of the reign of terror, and when they hear that phrase, they imagine noblemen guillotined in the streets of Paris. But it might interest our listeners to know that only one-sixth of the deaths in the Great Terror occurred in Paris. Half of them, by far the largest share, were of French men and women in the Vendée. The Vendée is a rural province in the southwest of France. Angry at the revolutionaries' abolition of the Catholic Church, the Vendeans revolted against the radical government in Paris, and a bloody civil war ensued. The war in the Vendée was particularly atrocious. The Vendeans decimated the troops sent to quell the revolt with unspeakable savagery. Seething with frustration at the insolence of these peasants and vengeful anger at the butchering of Parisian troops, the Republicans continued to fight in the Vendée, raping and murdering women and children. Jean-Baptiste Carrier, a Jacobin, was charged with restoring order. Instead, he encouraged his troops to kill and rape indiscriminately, regardless of sex, age, or even loyalty. He's quoted as saying, I know there may be some patriots in this country. No matter, we must sacrifice them all. Carrier was a proponent of what he called total extermination. After the war, Carrier was indicted for war crimes. The indictment reading, in all the pages of history, even in the centuries of barbarism, one can hardly find deeds with which to compare the horrors committed by the accused. The frequent rapes in the Vendée were evidence of a sexual undercurrent to the violence. One historian calls the war in the Vendée an explosion of deadly rivalries between different revolutionary currents against the backdrop of an affirmation of masculine power that left the path open to regression in the relations between men and women. Violence in the Vendée led to the loss of 250,000 lives in the countryside. Historians still debate whether the event meets the qualifications to be labeled a genocide. 
The Vendée is not the only example of revolutionary fervor turning sexually violent. In the fall of 1792, angry Parisian mobs stormed the nine prisons in the city limits. Their initial goal was to release prisoners they deemed worthy, but the crowd quickly formed makeshift tribunals and, quote, tried the prisoners there. These mock trials ended for many with death sentences. Rather than opting for humane executions, I don't know, as humane as an unlawful execution can possibly be, Um, the mob sent the bewildered prisoners outside of the prison where the rest of the mob cruelly molested and beat them to death with their own hands. Firearms were in short supply as they were needed at the fronts, and the guillotines were reserved for only the fanciest of the condemned. The fates of the prisoners varied depending on which prison they were released from. In some prisons, most if not all of its prisoners were murdered that day. Salpetriere, a prison for prostitutes, um, escaped that level of annihilation. Of the 270 inmates at Salpetriere, only 37, 25 of whom were prostitutes, were murdered at the hands of the angry mob that descended upon it. But that's still like a lot of people (laughs) to murder. Um, I shouldn't laugh. That's not funny. The crowd's bloodlust was insatiable. It was becoming clear to onlookers, domestic and international, how fine was the line between anger and lust, violence, and sexuality. The death of the Princess de Lamballe illustrates this point well. Madame de Lamballe was Marie Antoinette's confidant and a well-liked woman at the French court. So even though Marie Antoinette was vilified by much of France, um, her confidant and best friend, basically her BFF, Madame de Lamballe was really well-liked by people at court and by um, normal people. Are you taking pictures of me? Yes. Weird. On the night of the September massacres, she was accosted by a mob which demanded she renounce the king and queen. She refused to betray her loyalty to them and, like hundreds of prisoners that night, was passed around the angry crowd. She was stabbed and bludgeoned to death. Her head was placed on a spike and paraded past Marie Antoinette's dining room window. Um... Louis XVI's valet wrote afterward, quote, We were hardly seated before a head at the end of a pike was presented at the window. Tizan's wife screamed loudly. The murderers thought it was a queen's voice, and we heard the frantic laughs of those barbarians. Thinking that her majesty was still at table, they had raised the victim's head so that it could not escape her sight. It was that of the Princess de Lamballe. Though bloody, it was not disfigured, her blonde hair still curling, floating around the pike, end quote, which is way creepier, mm-hmm. if you could totally recognize her. This much we know to be fact, and if this is where the violence stopped, then it was typical of revolutionary executions, but many sources claim that Lumball's body was raped and sexually mutilated after her death. Most scholars think these sadistic stories are apocryphal, meaning they didn't really happen, but plenty of history books still report the sexual elements of her murder. Contemporaries also reported that during the terror, headless corpses were arranged in sexually suggestive poses. There are various other associations between the political violence of the revolution and the slaking of sexual pleasure. They're easy to find. In fact, it's become a trend for religious conservative bloggers to graphically detail the sexual excesses of the French Revolution in an effort to discredit the Enlightenment and the liberal political agendas which grew from it. We'll link to an example of this in our show notes, even though we really don't want to give them any extra clicks. Um, 
Maybe a screenshot then. We'll screenshot that shit. Uh, it's worth pointing out that even as conservative critics denounce the debauchery of the revolution, they're also reveling in it. Sharing the stories of sexual sadism, which litter the landscape of the revolution, even to criticize them, keeps them alive and further cements the association between political violence and quote-unquote deviant sexuality. So even if it didn't happen, the sexual fantasies that contemporaries held about the murder of Lamballe are evidence that for many, the violence of the revolution was arousing. And for many, it still is. It's no surprise, then, that Saad's dramas resonated with the French public of the time, and that they still do today. French revolutionaries probably found his deviance to be exhilarating, like something that would normally offend God and propriety. They were just into stuff like that. Despite his successes and the fact that sadism was the order of the day, Saad's noble lineage managed to haunt him. In 1792, Lacoste was sacked by rioters, and one of his dramas was booed off stage because of the former nobility of its author. He used his position as president of the Section de Pique to protect his in-laws. Yes, that included the mother-in-law, who secured all those hidden letters to imprison him and tried to ruin his life over and over again. Um, and he colluded in the escape of an officer accused of helping the nobility. By the end of 1793, his radical peers took notice. On December 8th of that year, Saad was arrested for moderatism and sentenced to death. He awaited his beheading behind a long line of condemned Frenchmen for 10 long months. In July 1794, just before Saad's execution, Maximilien Robespierre, the engine behind the Great Terror, was overthrown and guillotined himself. The reign of terror ended, and the Marquis de Saad miraculously still had his head. So mm -hmm. basically, once again, he could have died but didn't. Death dodger. <laughs> Despite unrelenting poverty and ill health, Saad continued to publish sadosexual erotica anonymously. And that should be maybe pointed out that anything of his that was published and performed was done so anonymously um, at the time. But a lot of people knew who who it was. It just wasn't it just wasn't being publicized that it was him. Elizabeth just took a picture of your butt. Ew. Yeah, whatever. You're just saying my butt sucks. You right. could have bent over. It would have been better. <laughs> I know. You should have let me know. I would have... Angled the butt. <laughs> Angled the cheeks. Napoleon's police uh, surveilled his every move. And in 1801, the police raided his publishing house, found manuscripts of Justine written in his hand, and arrested him for being the author of what contemporaries called, quote, the most frightfully obscene work of its kind, end quote. He spent a few years in the prison Saint-Pélagie and then was transferred back to the Sheraton Asylum in 1803, where he remained until his death from pulmonary disease in 1814. His last decade at Sheraton were somewhat happier than his first day had been. His mistress, Marie, lived alongside him. And I think let's all agree that it takes a special kind of woman to commit to living with her elderly boyfriend in an 18th century French insane asylum for a decade. Was he rich? Yeah, was he rich? No, he was he was poor completely by then? poor by then. He must have had a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. At Sheridan he was also permitted to put on theatrical performances. 
but his children, now adults who had reached maturity during the conservative decades following the revolution, were humiliated by his works. His son Armand arranged for the police to raid his lodgings and burn a ten-volume work that Saad had written called Journée de Florbel. Journée de Florbel. What did I say? You just went Journée de Florbel. <laughs> Journée de Florbel. The Marquis de Sade's legacy thus is complicated. In some ways, we see his influence borne out positively, yet controversially, in today's culture with consensual BDSM, which is bondage, domination, sadomasochism, mm -hmm. and swing communities, um, a more open and accepting attitude toward queer sexuality, the decriminalization of consensual sex acts, better protection for sex workers, and even mainstream blockbusters like Fifty Shades of Grey. He also left behind a considerable body of literary work. 18 of the 48 literary works known to be written by Saad were lost or destroyed, many by the hands of his descendants, who until recently were humiliated by his deviant sexuality. Um, uh, of the 16 plays he wrote, four were destroyed or went missing. Um, he, There's two surviving two, essays. There are two surviving essays. Six short stories that were all missing or lost, and then um, 24 novels. Most of them are several volumes. So when we say novels, I mean, we're talking, like, some of them have They're four or like five tomes. volumes. Yeah, giant tomes. Um, eight of them were destroyed or lost, but we still have the rest. Okay. Saad was an acclaimed playwright and president of a powerful and radical political sect in Paris during the Revolution. He had many loyal friends and successful ventures in his life, but his sexual deviance, violent sex crimes, and mental illness made him a pariah and a prisoner. His children and other descendants disowned him, embarrassed by his lewd exploits and shocking manuscripts. It's become fashionable in scholarly circles to appreciate his work for its transgressive qualities. In some ways, the Marquis can be cast as a victim of censorship and a proponent of free speech and frank sexuality. And he's portrayed as such by many scholars today. 120 Days of Sodom, for example, remained unpublished until 1904 and underwent several censorship campaigns. But as of last year, it became a Penguin classic. Ew. <laughs> Ugh. Penguin. We have to talk. Um, a German psychiatrist took interest in the manuscript and felt that its publication would be useful to doctors and anthropologists studying the human mind and behavior. It became a very rare and elusive text for decades until the 1950s when it was banned in Britain and the government of France proposed to burn several of Saad's works in addition to 120 Days of Sodom. Feminist Simone de Beauvoir objected, arguing that the Marquis de Sade was writing in opposition to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other Enlightenment philosophes who described human nature as essentially good. Beauvoir commended Saad for his honesty and appealed to absolute freedom, but lamented his failure to differentiate between absolute power and absolute freedom. She objected to the censorship and destruction of his works on these grounds. So maybe he was a literary genius, and perhaps he's even a symbol of everything transgressive. His legacy may turn out to be a positive one, and the Marquis himself had several endearing qualities, to be sure. Obviously, something had to convince Marie to live with him in a prison cell while he was aged and probably syphilis-ridden, whatever else. Um, she had to have a big wedding, I'm telling you. Yeah. That's endearing, I guess. Penises are endearing. Um, his loyalty, though, as well. So, 
his real endearing qualities in addition to his giant penis. His loyal <laughs> Oh god. His loyalty to his in-laws despite their mistreatment of him. Uh, his struggle with mental illness, his undying love for his sister-in-law slash nun slash teenage girl he deflowered, um, and his reliance on his mother. But, you know, people are complicated. Saad was also a misogynist. He dominated the women in his life, accosting them with jealous rages and selfish demands. He was a rapist and a violent predator. Well, 120 days of Sodom aside, we know that many of his sex partners were consenting, but we also know that several definitely were not. He groomed young girls and boys to be his sexual playmates. Oh, God, I just got a picture of Michael Jackson in my head. Oh, I love Michael Jackson. He didn't write about it, at least. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> um... At the time, pedophilia was a fluid category, so it would be anachronistic to judge him by today's standards. But there's no denying that he killed... Or, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, we don't know. That just escalated. Yeah. He did. <laughs> <laughs> no laughter. But there's no denying that he kidnapped and abused young teens who were unable to consent to the sex acts he committed with them. He was especially harsh towards sex workers toward the sex workers he patronized. He beat them and experimented on their bodies, inflicting pain and humiliation. Perhaps he thought that compensation should buy their compliance, uh, however cruel the act. Sex workers today are often victims of sexual assault committed by people who think that their money cancels out any objection that the sex worker may have to cruel or demeaning treatment. I don't know, I see this a lot on like Law & Order SVU, for example. A reliable source. Yes. <laughs> to me, though, um, I think the Marquis was, above all, a patriarch because he used sexual violence as a tool to control women, servants, and children in his life. This behavior is similar to the political and sexual violence wrought on the Vendée and onto aristocratic women in the capital during the French Revolution. Perhaps it was this capacity to control that attracted the French public to sexual violence during the revolution's most intense conflicts. So that's always something that is amazing. Something that is amazing to me or, or interesting is when you see um, depictions of war and it always involves, um, you know, like rape and basically men yeah. manhandling women and touching their boobs and then killing them or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you just think of any of any depiction of war in films or um game of thrones well i'm behind on game of thrones don't tell me but, but yes i mean even game the first the know. first season yeah, okay yes anything about game of thrones to know that it's like the rapiest show yes yes well and and you know what i always think of is the do you remember the joan of arc movie with um mila what's the heck's her name mila milovich something jovovich jo mila jovovich is that her name no yeah. she's that her name is Mila. Wait, the, wait. Jovovich, yeah. It's her, it's right? It's a TV movie. I think so. It's not. That, that's not who it is. But yes, I know it. Really okay, well. She the, was in a movie movie. It was like a movie movie. Maybe. I think it is a movie. About Joan of Arc? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. So let's just. There's a Joan of Arc movie. Okay, yeah. let's just agree. And um, th it's the most horrific scene. She's like hiding in a cottage. And I think her older sister is. Um, her older sister is. They. This 
they're French, obviously, so the English come in and they're all like gross and disgusting. And they take a sword and pin her sister up against the wall with a sword, you know, like killing her. And then he has sex with her dead body. And she's, I think, hidden behind the cupboard. Like, so she's right underneath where the sword is coming through the wall and witnesses this happening to Mm. her sister. And it just always, it's not, I don't know, I feel like to people who aren't accustomed to this type of violence, violence and sexuality, that's not like an obvious pairing. But it is. But it is. No, it is. But it is. Right. Right. So... I mean, Why is that? Every war. It's not like rape isn't a part of every war. Ever. No, it is. Every, is it because, ever. like, war is, like, manly and men are like, let me do this war with my penis and stuff like that? I think it's probably about dominance, but also about, you know, this is, wars are traumatizing for the men who fight them, too. And when you feel that loss of control over your own life as you watch the people who are around you dying... Um, one after another, whether it's from a splinter because you're in the 14th century um, or it's you're being mowed down in a line at the front in World War One, Reclaiming some sense of control over the bodies of women and children and the people that you meet, that you dominate on in battles when you take control of a particular part of territory, mm-hmm. that's the reclamation of a sense of self, of masculinity, of what it means to be a man in these situations. Well, I mean, and it also goes back to the idea, you know, who said all's fair in love and war? I don't know. Was it Shakespeare? Probably. He said everything. <laughs> but that idea, I mean, for Saad, obviously he took that to the extreme, just as many soldiers take all's fair in war. Because mm-hmm. the rules of the game are gone. In normal society, you don't go around raping people and burning their house down. That's right. wrong. Or even like looting or Right. Whatever. But yeah. when it comes to wartime, suddenly civil society is gone. And the you know, the men who would open doors for you and pull out your chair and uh, bring your mother flowers when they take you out for a date or whatever, they might be rapists in a war. Right. And I think, but I think there's also something that's really like titillating or something about Mm -hmm. violence. Like think about when you, um, you know, go past a car accident, you're like looking like, Ooh, like, Ooh, what happened? And it's, it's like maybe some people, a lot of, well, a lot of, I am, I guess. I mean, true crime podcast. Right. (laughs) True crime podcast, millions of listeners, because it's, there's, it's, there's just something fascinating. Like you can't, like, you can't look away. And, I mean, you can see pictures of, like, the Black Dahlia, for example. She's cut in half, and they have Ugh. pictures of, of her body, mm-hmm. you know, cut in half. And you can just Google it, and they have – there's archives of um, autopsies. You can see JFK's autopsy pictures, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think there is something that's, like, a turn-on. Like, it doesn't have to necessarily be sexual, but there's just something about this violence. Right. And when you're considering the French Revolution and how incredibly violent it was and, you know, how many public executions there were, people would go and hang out with their family and watch um, aristocrats have their heads cut off mm-hmm. and then their bodies, like, you know, defiled. You know, then they'd go home and, I don't know, Do make it. babies. Yeah. It's just, it's the most bizarre thing. It's, no, it's totally true because... Since we've already warned that children shouldn't be listening to this, 
that one time when Dan and I were coming home from the airport or somewhere on the, in the middle of the day, middle of the night, and a car was coming at us on the one-way highway. Right. And that car then smashed into the front of a semi. Right. And obviously that person died. But we were, like, jacked the f- up yeah. and got home and just boned all night. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, you, there's a physical response to that kind of terror and in, in, in fear and excitement that what else are you going to do with it? Right. But that is that's the scary part is that there is a line, you know, like that is the same thing that those four wealthy men in the 120 days of Sodom were feeling. They felt exhilarated by the violence that they mm-hmm. were perpetuating on people's bodies you know but it's also like horrible yeah. so it's it's really it's a very fine line we also see a little bit of this with um physicians who wrote uh anatomical treatises mm-hmm. and and did um drawings of of people's bodies like flayed open right. they were like hypersexualized uh and yeah very in a very sort of at the time i guess acceptable way but it's still the um sexualizing of violence sort yeah. of it's it's really interesting interesting and terrifying but i mean that just goes to show you know in response to those very conservative blogs that we're not even going to link to because we're not giving you any click through click throughs um that this is unfortunately but without a doubt a part of the human experience that you know it's just it, it is what it is and that's something that we have to grapple with as people um how we obviously can't separate sexuality from violence in any in many ways and so it bears repeating that there are safe and consenting ways that people have sort of today embraced the connection between violence and sexuality and and expressed themselves and that's that bdsm that we mentioned earlier in the episode and so that um is a sort of turning on its head of all of that we've talked about. Right. And there but <clears throat> just there's also negative ways that it this has impacted yes. our society, like rape culture, for mm-hmm. example. Absolutely. Um but I think, you know, just as people are complicated, um, not all good and not all bad, so is history. You know, it's often it's ugly, it's sometimes righteous, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's perplexing, um, but it's always fascinating and be sure to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and pinterest at dig underscore history you can email us if you love the episode hated the episode whatever your feelings are at hello at digpodcast.org. um you can also find all of our show notes and we'll be sure to give you links to lots of further reading for this episode at digpodcast.org. um and if you have a chance a second five 30 seconds please leave us a favorable review on itunes that would be really awesome we'd appreciate it so i think that's all we have for you today thank you for joining us for this episode of dig um we love you thank you for listening we'll catch you next time and then uh louis cans which i guess no, it's not Louis Hans. Louis says. Sarah. Sarah's here. Sarah's a dog? Sarah's a dog.